Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are back with another episode of the Scarlet Thread Society. Before we get into our listeners' stories, as always, I want to encourage you to take some safety precautions for yourself and anyone that may be listening with you. Lock your doors, close your windows, cover your mirrors. If you feel so compelled, throw down a little bit of a salt circle, maybe light a tobacco product of your choice, and then, once you are good and secure from what lurks in the night, settle in. We've got a really good one this month. This month, we've got exactly one listener story who has chosen to retain full anonymity as they relate their tale. That will be thoroughly respected here. Sit back and enjoy, though, because it's a doozy. I am from northern Florida and have lived in the same area my entire life. I grew up hunting, fishing, roaming the woods, etc. We are one of the oldest Anglo families in Florida and are a fairly non-superstitious people. We carried very little lore over from our old world lives when we came to the U.S. in the 1600s. That being said, all of us are open to things beyond explanation. I am a former anthropologist with a focus in physical anthropology. I am very familiar with human evolution, hominid species, and apes of all flavors, extinct and extant. I left that world behind because of a bad political atmosphere within academia. This gives you a pretty good idea of where I'm coming from here. So into the swamp ape stuff. So my wife and I were living in a nearby city and were about to have our first child and wanted to move before she got too old. Trying to buy a house took forever. So in the meantime, we decided to move in with my mother and stepfather. They lived on their portion of our old family land where I grew up. Thousands of acres worth around. We ended up there until our daughter was around two. The first instance of strange stuff was the feelings of being watched on the property. This only happened whenever we were really busy out late at night or early in the morning, i.e. working in the workshop late, blacksmithing into the late hours of the night, or even leaving early for work. This was often accompanied by a strong odor. Not the skunk-like odor that I've heard people often attribute, but more of a wet dog and carrion kind of smell. Then there was the occasional whoop. It sounds like a 400-pound gibbon, a gibbon on steroids. But it's Florida. There are God knows how many animals that make ridiculous sounds. Then the tapping started. About six months into our stay with my mother, we had settled in and I had set up a guest office in one of the spare rooms. I would often be up until 2 or 3 in the morning working on various things. Suddenly, one night, something tapped on the window. It sounded like knuckles rapping on the window to me. 
Now, I can barely reach the top part of the window that isn't screened in from the ground, and I am six foot tall. There is nothing nearby to hit the window. No branches, no way for acorns to fall and hit with such force. Bugs aren't nearly that loud or percussive when they hit a window. So from there, I started documenting it, and it seemed to line up mostly with the full moon or the brightest of nights. What this means, I can speculate on knowing primate behavior so well, but I don't think that it belongs there. Around five or six months after this started happening is when my daughter told us that there are, quote, gorillas, unquote, in the woods behind the house. She was close to two years old at that time, and she is familiar with what gorillas look like. Now, I know kids have wild imaginations, but things were starting to add up to something interesting here. We asked her how she knew she said she had seen them when she was out playing with her mama, my mother. This is when I decided to start watching. The eerie feelings at night, and especially the occasional whoops, had driven both my wife and I to start being out to stop being outside late. I changed my mind after my daughter's comments. I started making a point to scan the tree line late. Activity at the window had all but stopped at this point. And then finally, one night in September of 2019, I saw them. Two in the tree line. The big one, extremely broad. I am six foot with a 54-inch chest, and the taller one was broader than me by a foot on each side, probably half a foot taller yet. I could slightly make out the hair, but not much else really. The smaller one had an arm raised resting on the tree. Medium-length legs compared to the torso and long arms. Almost stereotypical description. I was floored. I was always open, but I was never a hundred percent, and now I am. We moved again in December. My younger brother, who has since moved back home, has documented occasional taps in the same room as well, late at night. I'm sorry if this feels like it rambles, and do what you must to get a cohesive narration out of it if you choose to use it. Feel free to contact me with questions as well. Well, you know who you are out there in the audience when this podcast makes its way to you. And if you hear this before I get in touch with you, please know that I will be contacting you. Because that is a real... That's pure gold as far as sightings go. It is very rare to be able to line up a set of phenomena and then encounter the being afterwards once you're actively looking for something. People don't realize this about cryptid hunting, but it is the rarest of the rare. It's the 0.1% of encounters where you're actually seeking something out and then find it. UFO experiencers, Bigfoot trackers, dogman hunters, they're the people who see these things the least. 
most people chalk it up to these things being able to sense that their presence is desired and thus actively avoid it. So the fact that we've got here a story where the form matches the meme, the legend, the memeplex, and then it was still able to manifest for this person is, yeah, it's incredible. It's not one of a kind, but it's the rarest of the rare type of encounter. So I will have more questions for this individual, and maybe, just maybe, we'll be coming back to this story in particular. Thank you for listening along. Hey folks, welcome back from the break. As always, it's Dexter De La Paz, and I'm really excited about what we're bringing you this month. So, as you know, we've been kind of meandering our way through what has been Kabbalah over the course of this first year of the Scarlet Thread Society. And something that I knew coming into this topic that maybe not everyone here would have realized in the audience, is that the Kabbalah touches, at some point or another, nearly every part of Western Hermeticism. There's very little that isn't within the scope. And so today we're going to talk about one of the things that is not, uh, not as directly involved, I'll say, as the other topics we've discussed here on the show. Today we're going to be talking about tarot. And so it is my pleasure to have gone out and found an expert who I will now give the chance to introduce himself in whichever manner he finds most appropriate. Yeah, thanks, Dexter. Uh, uh, I'm Brad Kelly. I am a uh, primarily a novelist. Um, and a tarot font, a, a student of the tarot for a number of years now. Um, I, uh, I, I'm not a, uh, a professional in the sense that I charge for readings or anything like that. I would consider myself more of a, more of a practitioner, though, I, though I've given countless readings to, to friends and strangers alike. Um, uh, I also have my own podcast, uh, Art of Darkness. We, talk, uh, we do biographies on... Uh, uh, the dark side of arts focusing on, you know, individual artists that we, that we sort of know and love and some we don't know quite so well at the beginning and know pretty well by the end. Um, and yeah, yeah. So that's me. Um, I'm working, uh, I think part of the reason that, uh, that you, you decided to reach out to me is, as I'm, I'm writing a, a series on the tarot, it's kind of taken me a while, but I'm going card by card and, and writing individual pieces focusing on, 
um, sort of the meanings of the cards, how to think about them a little bit. Um, but being a novelist, I, I, I tend to sway away from anything that's just an encyclopedia. They're, 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 minute, they're little art pieces that uh, I think are illuminating uh, on specific cards. So eventually I'm going to work my way through the whole deck there as well. So it's tarot is something I spend a lot of time reading about, thinking about, uh, increasingly talking about, and uh, I'm pretty excited to, to talk with you about it. Yeah, that's very astute of you. That was exactly right. That was a big part of the motivation. I didn't want to spoil your plugs for you, so I didn't want to come out and say it. But yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And so I guess maybe the best place to start for my audience or for people out there who might not be familiar somehow with what we're talking about, Mm -hmm. in the broadest possible sense, what is the tarot? Ooh, okay. Yeah, that's... uh... That's a question I've been been uh, trying to answer for the last mm, seven or eight years, maybe longer than that. Um, the tarot is a divinatory system um, that essentially randomizes archetypal information in order to uh, help you bring the unconscious material toward the fore of your mind. Um, there's this great Carl Jung quote that I think about in terms of all of this, um, where Carl Jung said, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. And of the many, many ways that you might bring, make the unconscious conscious, I think tarot is one of the most powerful, especially for somebody who is sensitive to aesthetics sensitive to narrative, um, and who has a mind that kind of works in that manner. So, so yeah, that's, that's fundamentally what tarot has evolved into though. It's, that's not perhaps what the original intent of the tarot was. Um, but that is what it, I believe it accomplishes now. So you say evolve into, Right. And I think it would, of course, also be useful maybe to already begin backtracking and talk a little bit about the history of the tarot and what we know of its original uses, traditional practices. Mm -hmm. So what can you tell me about that? I think most people who are familiar with the topic might understand that they started as uh, stylized playing cards somewhere in uh, medieval or Renaissance Europe. Mm-hmm. Is it more complex than that? What do we know? Yeah, so it, the the beginnings of it, uh, it does appear to have started as a game. And like most games, it, you know, it, it didn't, since it didn't live in the academy and it didn't live in the sciences and those kinds of things, I, I, I think the origination of it is is kind of the, the, the very first start, you know, where was the first deck of cards is a little bit murky. The commonly referenced first tarot deck is something called the Visconti Sforza deck. And it was, um, it was a deck that was commissioned for, um, I don't remember the name of the position, but it was basically the guy who was in charge of Milan, Italy, um, in the 14th century. <clears throat> and um, it was pretty clearly used as a game at that time. So Nobody really quite knows the rules, but it was but it was something like a card game that we would know now. Um, and the format of the tarot deck is familiar for anybody who's played, you know, euchre or poker or anything like that. You've got 
four suits. They're not the same suits as we're familiar with in a poker card, in a poker deck. You have <clears throat> face cards, um, but you also have this whole other set um, of 22 cards, which are commonly referred to as the Major Arcana. And in those first decks, the Visconti's Forza and some others from that time, it was pretty clear that the commissioned artist had been um, had been putting in illustrations from Sforza's, Sforza's life, um, just kind of key moments in either his life or his family's life. So, you know, the way I think of it is it was something like a tabletop strategy game that you would play yeah. now, except they were playing it with the story of the Sforza family, if that makes sense. Nobody Absolutely, knows. It does. Yeah, nobody knows exactly what the rules were or anything like that. Um, so it appears that for many years, it remained simply a game. Um, notable families would commission their own decks. Um, there's 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 many examples of this happening. And then uh, and then, of course, people would play it, you know, common people would play it just like you might hang out with your friends and play a game of cards how it became integrated into um, mystical, magical, uh, divinatory practices is a little bit murky, but probably didn't really start into the 17th or maybe the 18th century. Um, at some point, it appears that uh, that gypsies got their hands on it and started using it for divinatory practices. And, As will happen, right? Yeah, right. And it's kind of like anything. It's kind of like reading tea leaves, you know? You have somebody who's sort of oriented and thinking this way, and they start applying patterns to what they're seeing. Um, I think it's similar. People threw bones. People read the birds of entrails. People uh, read tea leaves. And then at some point, somebody said, well, you can do it with cards also. Um, sure, not to denigrate the practice or make it seem trivial, but there is a sort of person who is very naturally inclined to this sort of looking or pattern seeking beyond the scope of what we do already as humans day to day. Right. You know, the human is a pattern seeking animal to begin with. Right. But there is a group or a subset among us who dare I say, archetypally are pattern seekers, people who are able to suss out the whims of the world's RNG. And right. they'll make a uh, divinatory system out of almost anything. And again, I don't yep. say that to cheapen this one bit because I have immense respect for these uh, synchronicity sleuths. Right. And, and yeah, and I think, I mean, there's a lot of ways to interpret what's going on in an effective tarot reading. And I think, um, I think part of it is, well, uh, I think randomness, <laughs> I mean, randomness can be a little bit, uh, you can think randomness is truly random or you can think synchroni synchronicities mean something. And I lean pretty hard into thinking that synchronicities mean something. I absolutely do too, for what right. it's worth. Yeah. So you shuffle this deck and you think about it and you put some mental energy into it and some focus, and then you start to quote unquote, randomly pull these cards. Um, you're, you know, you've, it's, it's like a, a random number generator you've created, right. And you're right. focusing mental energy on it and, and things start to come together. Um, so, so yeah, some, some, some uh likely a gypsy um 
kind of stumbled across this and it began to spread. Now, one thing, one way that it, I think it became so powerful is the cards. You had the cards that were the template for for them was the story of this of a person's life. Um, Sforza and some of these other people who had cards commissioned. So unlike tea leaves, which, you know, you're getting just kind of a splotch and you have to interpret it, you already have the story of a person's life, right? And then you mix it up and then you, you pull individual pieces from it and you represent it to the person that you're giving a reading for. And just based on that, there's going to be some correspondences, right? There's going to be, well, okay, this tower being struck by lightning. Well, I've had, you know, metaphorically, I've had a tower in my life struck, struck by lightning. So that resonates. So I think, I think that, you know, it, it works so well for the tarot because it was already set up to represent somebody's life as it is. Um, and then, so that's, this is, this is starting to happen in the 16 and 1700s. Um, by the time you get to the great um, uh, occult enthusiasm of the 19th century, then you get people deliberately trying to add symbolism and meaning to individual cards. You get people like um, Eliphas Levy, who is the guy who really started to attach uh, Kabbalistic significances to the cards, tried to look for correspondences to the Sephiroth. Um, and really, and, and he had his own deck, which for some reason, I don't know that anybody's reproduced it though. It might not exist anymore. So if I can just interject real quick here, a little context for that name, because I have not discussed him yet on this podcast. Uh, I don't know how much you've listened and, uh, I take no offense if you haven't Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I've, uh, discussed the original of course jewish religious mysticism origins of the kabbalah i've talked a little bit about the renaissance christian dabblings in the kabbalah Mm -hmm. that really seemed like a uh, tree that was strangled as a sapling yeah it was planted in very fertile grounds before it just stopped by the counter-reformation's emergence Mm -hmm. and uh you mentioned this gentleman uh, how do you pronounce his name? Levy? Levy. Eliphas Levy. I, I, that's not his birth name, but that's his, uh, no. that's what he goes he is adopted. By. His name is a practitioner. Yeah. And that's important because not only was he a wellspring for the growth of the tarot, he was also one of the really key engines driving the English occultic craze of, as you said, the 19th century. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, you can trace back any modern occult practice and it will touch either him or one of his direct disciples oh, yes. at this point. You know, he was one of the watershed figures of Western hermeticism. There yeah. were practices before him that didn't survive and there were practices he created out of whole cloth. But, you know, without sitting here and babbling about him specifically for the rest of the time I've allotted us. Right. It's suffice to say that he is a fulcrum of magical history, at least in the West. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I know, uh, I know there's a lot of talk about, uh, people like to talk about Aleister Crowley and, and, uh, rightly so, but I, I think in terms of the history of occultism, um, uh, I think he's probably maybe an even more important figure. Um, so yeah, he, I agree completely. Yeah, yeah. You know, Crowley has a, I wouldn't say a lot to commend him as a person. Right. 
but a lot to commend him as an important figure in history. Oh yeah, absolutely. But this guy is significantly more so. Yeah, yeah, and 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 the the ground he did find himself, you know, sort of fertile ground for developing all of these ideas, but I think he was even more of a uh more of an original than some of the other people that came along later simply because he kind of created the environment that a lot of the other stuff or at least contributed strongly to creating the environment that things like the order of the golden dawn would 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 later come out of um so he creates a he creates his own tarot deck um in the in the 19th century uh starts to integrate um uh, kabbalistic imagery um i think he was the first person to put hebrew letters on on individual cards um and that every time somebody makes an made an edit of the tarot so you've got the sforza and then you've got a number of other decks and then you've got the marseille deck which some people still swear by um alejandro yodorowsky his whole psychomagical system is based on the marseille deck um and then you've got levy's deck there's the sola busca deck and every time one of these gains some cultural traction and is used by people, some elements of it will survive into the next iteration. Um, so you'll, you've, it, this is why I called it, it evolved into this thing. Um, so you've got Levy and then you've got a little while later, the big, the big deck is the Rider Waite Smith deck that was developed in 1920. Um, and to sidebar here yeah. real quick, as far as I know, observing from a distance, that's yeah. still kind of considered to be the deck, right? Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It seems to be the most um, popular and in the one way you can kind of tell that's the deck that I rely on the most. I, own a number of decks but that's the one that i i pull out the most um one of the ways i think you can tell how influential the rider Waite smith deck is is almost anytime you see somebody coming up with their own deck they are leaning on what arthur e Waite and patrick uh, Pat- uh pamela coleman smith did in ni- 1920-ish um so you know anything you see like the kitty cat tarot or the or the, you know, you name it, tarot, they're usually leaning Some of on. these thematic uh, gimmick mm. decks. Yeah. Like, I've seen Barnes & Noble selling the steampunk tarot. Okay, right, it's right. It's very clearly formatted on the that deck yeah and and one of the big one of the big formal innovations of that deck was that um, pamela coleman smith did illustrations for the minor decks the you know the the twos and the threes and the aces and those kinds of things prior to her there had only been one other deck which wasn't in common usage there had only been one other deck that had actual um illustrations with figures on them so those cards had historically just been um, sort of designs and a six of cups would have six cups with, you know, some floral pattern or something on it, where she went ahead and put a figure or a little scene on each one of those cards, which dramatically enriches the, the, you know, thematic associations you will have in pulling that card. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I think, uh, it's, shocking to me that it took so long for something like that to happen mm-hmm. honestly yeah yeah i think this was when i mean i think you know it started out as a card game so you didn't need those illustrations um and then there was a long stretch of time where people were essentially doing numerological associations alone with those cards and then pamela in her great genius she she 
just decided to depict what these cards should mean. Right. So, right. Um, and especially in, you know, as somebody who reads tarot for people whenever they will let me and, and sometimes they, <laughs> they, you know, people reach out to me and ask me, um, having an illustration on those cards makes it much a much simpler process of doing an effective reading because you'll see the illustration and at least some of that that information is conveyed without me saying anything. Whereas when you rely on just numbers and, you know, seven swords, there's a lot more explanation that needs to go on and it doesn't necessarily resonate as easily. So, so yeah, uh, props to Pamela Coleman Smith for sure. I think that was the, I think that was maybe the most important innovation in, in the evolution of tarot. Um, and then shortly thereafter, you had a number of other decks. Crowley's deck came out uh, not that long later. And then you've had just in the, you know, since we're kind of in this amazing DIY renaissance where, you know, people can put out very professional looking products basically on their own. Um, there's just been an insane proliferation of decks. <clears throat> now, how many, and we're clearly into the modern era here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are there other up and coming decks or stylizations or is it all that sort of this is the artist's inspiration but it's still just a Ryder smith deck yeah no you so know, is there something that feels new and fresh or something that's been emerging even now as we're talking today yeah there's a there's and i haven't played with it too much there's a um there's what's called oracle cards um which are they they rely on the same premise of okay we have a card and each card has a sort of a meaning and we're going to shuffle them up and represent them to the querent and and we're going to get a story a, a narrative about that person from them it's the same concept but the cards it's a completely um independently developed system of images and some people like it quite a lot um i know some people in uh some people who are like counselors or therapists in fact will use it and they'll just pull a card just as a just as a reference and because it's not tarot it doesn't have like these occult associations so right. that the people it hasn't been spoiled yeah. by several decades or centuries of folks right. with uh colorful capes doing right. rituals right me. right 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 so there's so there's that and I, i've looked at them and i've sort of um i've sort of played around with them a little bit and and you know i think the 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 fundamental mechanics of tarot could apply to to you, you could put a, you could put a lot of different things on the cards and and, and make an an experience that is in some way effective out of it um i i lean more towards I, I lean a little bit more towards classic tarot, you know, the Rider Waite Smith in my case, um, because it seems like it's part of the this evolved tradition where things were added and taken out depending on whether they worked for people, and in in my opinion, then kind of settles in something that's effective. So it's a, it's almost like a uh, it's an as as far as an artistic. Pro, uh, product or artistic object it's something that was developed by collaboratively by hundreds of people over hundreds of years and so for me to develop for one or two people to develop a whole new system it doesn't have that that lineage of passing through all of these psyches um and, sure. and so to me it's not as uh i'm not as convinced that it would be as effective and while it's certainly not the consensus impression people have 
of what occultism is. Mm-hmm. That is what it definitionally is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the ongoing practice of receiving and passing unconventional knowledge or knowledge that needs to be initiated and mm-hmm. taught. Mm-hmm. You know, like something as simple as learning algebra could be considered to right. be occult knowledge because it's not innate. Yeah. And it's not necessarily um, something that just happens and is right. comprehended. Yeah. Even somebody, taught even somebody who is a mathematical genius might not come up with algebra if they were, you know, living out in the woods. <laughs> their whole and life. this is that same exact thing. You know, yeah. it's the process of receiving and then transmitting mm-hmm. it, not just knowledge itself, but a ongoing tradition for the use of the knowledge. Right, right, right. Oh, that's, that's it. And, and I agree. That's what I really, part of what I find really appealing about this is that there's this sort of rich lineage mm-hmm. associated with it. You know, it's not, it doesn't feel like someone's trying to make a buck. It feels right. like an ongoing discussion with previous and future generations. Yeah. Yes. And, and you, you know, the, there's another kind of interesting facet to this, to the lineage of tarot. And um, in the 19th century, there was a lot of attempts to f- try and figure out like, okay, well, where did all this information come from? And so many people would try to say, well, this is really um, ancient Egyptian wisdom um, that was everyone blames the mystery schools, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Yes, exactly. Um, so there was there was attempts to, to trace it back to you know ancient Egypt, and then there were attempts to say, well, this is this is um, informa- This is the uh, religious insights of the Cathars that was hidden in a card game, so it could be transmitted from generation to generation. You'll find all of these attempts to to apply it to some. Some long whatever your standing. mystery school of choice is, right. people will try and ascribe it to that. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And to me, I find it almost more interesting that no, this is like a. It's not from a specific school. It's a long-term project of like humanity, or at least the West that were that's been collaborated collaborated on generation after generation. It's so it's it doesn't have to go back to ancient Egypt. I kind of like the idea that it's sort of like just bubbled up out of a game that people were playing in their, in their parlor. And eventually all of this, this other stuff gets, gets sort of integrated into it. So I like that aspect. I mean, you talked about hermeticism there, the, the, uh, you know, the, a lot the idea that a lot of the ancient hermetic texts were these ancient, ancient, ancient books and, the Renaissance in the Renaissance, people were trying to figure out what they came from, and it turned out that they were not nearly as old. But at the same time, nobody actually knows who wrote any of them. Yeah, I, and I think kind of what you're talking about is when you hear about uh, grimoires and stuff, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you have these books that people in the 1400s were literally discovering, you know, in the 15th century, and they were thinking to themselves, "Oh, well, this must have been." the final copy of something lost in the library of Alexandria. Right. And as it turns out, no, it was written 200 or so years before. Right. But they don't know who the author was. Right. And it does certainly seem to have, you know, I mean, keep using the word because it's definitionally appropriate, occult knowledge within it. Right. So, you know, who actually wrote it? Why did they write it? It's not as old as you think, but there's still something to it. Yeah. And And there's, without getting way off topic into that, that's something that I'm going to be covering in depth as time allows on this podcast. Good. Yeah. I'll I'll be looking at that. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating just 
how stories have evolved around those books in addition to what's in them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. So the tarot is, I mean, I like to think of the tarot as a book. It's just the way that you read it is uh, you don't read it page to page necessarily, unless you're in the phase of you're trying to, to study it. To, to learn it. But in terms of an individual reading, you don't go page to page, but it is, is effectively a book. You know, it's even, um, it's put out by book publishers typically. And that's because it's, it's the format of it is very much like a book. And so, um, you know, we call it reading tarot and, uh, <laughs> and it, it definitely fits into that tradition. Sort of like the, uh, penultimate choose your own adventure. Yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, and there is, there is, that's an important, that's an important point. I mean, one, one thing it does is it focuses, um, because it's being randomized, it is folk, it does focus people in a, in a way that maybe other systems don't. So in times when I've given people reading, my favorite thing to do is to give a reading to somebody who's like very much a rationalist, um, you know, very doesn't believe in any of the woo woo stuff. And and I will tell them, I'm like, this is, this is going to work anyway. Don't worry. But one thing I need you to do, the person that I'm reading to is I need you to try to see yourself in these cards that we're putting out. Like if you don't try, it doesn't work at all. You need to try and see, can you think of any way that this card applies to you? Cause if you just sit there with your arms crossed, shaking your head, it's, n- it's never going to work. Um, but if you're willing to lean into it, even a little bit, you'll start to, you'll, I think uh, almost any reading that gets done, the person's going to start to feel and see things that, that make sense for them. So I'm going to use a word that's going to make me sound like a new ager. Okay. And I think my audience knows that I really just can't get on board with a lot of new age philosophy. Sure. But, uh, it's a word uh, related to words we've already bandied about a little bit. And I want to say intentionality, Mm -hmm. right? And that sets and determines so much of this, uh, specifically in a context like this, and the ability to offer just a little bit of buy-in. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not grand enough or sweeping enough in a person's life to call it an offering of faith, right? But the idea that you can just kind of dip your toe in it, right? And entertain an idea just enough to see what'll happen, right? I think right. is a uh, what exactly what you're talking about here. And it's so important, not just to this, but to so many other things. Yeah. But especially in this sort of broader realm. Yeah. I think a good analogy is like, if you're watching a film, like let's say you're watching some kind of speculative movie, you know, or science fiction or fantasy elements. If you sit there the whole time trying to every, every little detail, you're, you're telling yourself why that couldn't happen or um, you know, why that's physically or scientifically impossible or whatever. Well, you're going to miss the point of the whole film. And, and so, you I mean, you might be right, you know, that that can't happen, but in the end, you're only ruining your own experience basically. Um, you know, and then when it's over, you can, you can decide what you, you know, you can decide what your, uh, metaphysical conception of reality is and that's, that's fine. Um, but in terms of just getting what you can out of this system, it's, it's good to, it's good to lean into it a little bit and, and, uh, not get too caught up in your preconceived, preconceived notions. So, uh, one more thing I might just say on that topic, the podcast that inspired me and the first appearance I ever did on audio was mm-hmm. with uh, the damn woods. Okay. And I don't know if this saying originated with them, 
but it's had a profound impact on my life. And they were certainly the first place I heard it and the place I've heard it the most. Uh, first it's a joke, then it's a lifestyle, right? <laughs> right. So right. you, you let yourself do it and with a sort of layer of irony the first yeah. time. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden that's your doorway into allowing yourself to take it seriously and really buying into what these systems have to offer. Yeah. And no, I think that's no. how you approach these sort of, uh, meta rationalist fat brain people who want to apply empiric knowledge to everything, mm-hmm. even in places where empiric knowledge just factually is not the appropriate approach. Right, 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 right. Well, in this, and this is, this is true. You'll even see some of this in, in, um, in people who do give something like the tarot, a lot of credit where, um, people want to know, well, what exactly does that card mean? And the thing that I have to kind of come back to is like, well, it doesn't exactly mean anything. <laughs> so it means a whole bunch of it. It has a, a, a broad range of potential meanings um, that are partially dependent on what resonates at this moment, partially dependent on what the card that came before it and the card that came after it. Um, partially dependent on what, how it makes sense in the scope of an entire reading. Um, and then if I'm actually in the process of giving somebody a reading partially dependent on, you know, whatever intuitive processes I have going on at the moment, you know, so I can decide to kind of lean into it one way or lean into it in another way. I mean, this is, this is part of the reading process. I mean, Jung said, Jung talks about symbols and he said if you can define exactly what a symbol means it's not even a symbol anymore it's like a word or something right symbols we we need that symbol because it the 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 concept that it encapsulates is so complicated and blurry at the edges that there's really no other way to convey it not fully you know so so instead of trying to trying to explain the symbol of a snake, you just show a snake and it has this, this historical depth of associations that people have had with it. Sure. There's a sort of received instinct that Mm -hmm. needs to play at what an image is or what a symbol is. Yeah, exactly. You know, I couldn't agree with that quote more. If it's got a firm edge, you can't actually grasp it. Right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know if we want to, do you want to do like a, I can give you like a rough, uh, we can talk roughly about, I don't know about card meanings, but like how the deck is organized and maybe some ways to, to, for a person to, to start being able to flip cards and understand what they're looking at. Yeah. I think that would be a great, uh, transition here for us. Get a little bit more into the actual technical practice now that we've discussed the theory, at least at a primer level for people. Yeah, cool. So now one thing to keep in mind, tarot, like uh, I, I explain it to people. It's like martial arts. Like you've got um, you've got jujitsu and you've got Muay Thai and you've got karate and and uh, a, a jujitsu guy and a Muay Thai guy aren't going to think about it in exactly the same way. So there's there's different but they're all they're all ways of fighting. Right. So there's 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 the way that I look at it, which I've based uh, on reading quite extensively thinking about it, writing about it, giving people readings, reading for myself. But there are other ways of looking at it. So so one thing is this is uh this is my way of looking at it, but I didn't sort of invent it all on my own. So um 
the first is the the thing we'll talk about is the major arcana those 22 cards that even people who aren't super familiar with are going to recognize some of them these are cards like the fool and death and uh the hanged man and the high priestess and those kinds of things these are cards that don't have suits um the best way to think about these cards is so there is I, I don't know if you're familiar with the hero's journey, if that makes. I certainly am. Okay. I would anticipate a sizable piece of my audiences as well. Okay. Even if they don't uh, necessarily know why they know it. Right, right. So yeah, it's the, it's the, they've also called it the monomyth and, and Joseph Campbell was really good at articulating it, but it goes, you know, way beyond him. And it's, it's this sort of story cycle that, that most, um, you know, most narrative uh, films and plays and books um, kind of follow. Um, and the tarot major arcana tells what I would call an alternative to that. It tells the fool's journey as opposed to the hero's journey. And the fool's journey is a archetypal story about how a person goes from birth to enlightenment. Um, and there are 22 phases. It starts out with the fool and then the fool encounters the magician. And the magician is when the fool learns how to, um, execute his will in the world. And then, and then after the magician, you run into the high priestess and there's a sequence of steps from the fool all the way to the world. Um, now a person's individual life isn't necessarily going to follow each one of those steps. And then you get to the end, you get to the world and then you die. It's not that it's not that uh, set in stone, but it's, but it's sort of an example narrative about how a person's life can go. Um, And there's some sort of, there's some powerful moments in there, uh, um, you know, that I think resonate with most people the the hermit which is a a stage about sort of going inward to to coalesce and collect you know the experiences that you've had and 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 try to um digest them and turn them into to a revised and 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 more powerful conception of the world um one point that's interesting i think and there's many uh one point that's interesting about the fool's journey is that death comes in the middle um and there's a lot of ways to read that with that. Why would it come in the middle? Why is there half of it happens afterward? Um, and I guess, you know, anybody can kind of meditate on that a little bit, but that's about, you know, some radical new beginning. It's about crossing some Rubicon that you kind of, you kind of have to, um, you know, that could be, you know, if somebody had a substance abuse problem, that could be the time where they finally give it up right? That's a kind of death. And even though it's immensely positive, there is a certain way the line's been crossed and it can't go, can't, you can't go back. Um, yeah. And again, just mm-hmm. to interject on you here, mm-hmm. I really want to emphasize that point to the audience here. Mm-hmm. You, especially early on, I imagine there's a temptation to read these things extremely literally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you just cannot do that, right? No. You yeah. know, part of the real quote unquote magic of this is making the pieces fit. Right. And divining right. your own uh, rearranging of events through the cards. Right. Less than the cards dictating anything to you. Right. Yeah. Well, I'll give you an, one example on, on death. And, and, and the reason I focus on that one is because I think 
people who are new to it will see that card and it's very, it can be very scary. And the question is like, well, does this mean I'm going to die? Well, everybody's going to die. So, so right. in a sense, so what are you sense, worried about, buddy? Yeah. So in a sense, I guess it does mean eventually you're going to die. Um, but like, I'll give you an example. I gave a reading um, to a woman once who is having some, some real deep problems in her marriage. Um, and not like abusive kind of things, but just, you know, they'd gotten married young and it, she was kind of reaching this point where it was like, you know, we're both very different people than when we started. Like, it doesn't make sense or we're not compatible anymore, or, you know. And um, she kind of realized that what death meant in that card was divorce. What she felt like the card was telling her was something she already kind of knew was that, like, we should probably not be together anymore. Right. And that's a kind, again, that's a kind of death, right? You've committed yourself to each other, yourselves to each other. And now that's over. Now you've got this, this dramatically different landscape that you're about to enter. Um, so those major arcana cards, you know, I think a typical person is going to throughout their life, they're going to have to go through a series of them. And then you might revert back almost to the beginning and you might jump forward 10 cards. The order of them is, is important as a, a, a framework for thinking about it. But just like, you know, just like your movie isn't, uh, your life isn't a movie, your life isn't going to fit that, that tidy storyline. Um, though it might, you know, a, a sequence of cards in a row might might actually resonate for you um so you've got the made that's the kind of a breakdown of the major arcana you, you know it's 22 out of the 78 cards one thing you might be interested in is um 22 is the 22 is the uh in hebrew is like the number signifying god if i'm not mistaken I would have to check that with my notes and sources, but I'd be totally prepared to believe that, especially, you know, just knowing what we know about the history of the practice and the people who've had an influence on the history of tarot. Right, right, right. So, so we've got the major arcana, those 22 cards, and then we've got the minor arcana. And I think I said before, you've got four suits there. Um, There are cups, there are swords, there are wands, and there are pentacles. Some decks will change the names of those slightly. They'll call a pentacle a coin. They'll call a um, a wand a rod or a staff or something. But it's all kind of the same thing. Um, those go ace and then two through ten, just like just like a poker deck. And then you have a king, you have a queen, you have a knight and a page, all within all within those same suits. So. You can see the pretty big correspondences with the poker deck. Um, a poker deck, though, has a, a king and a queen and a and a jack. Um, you know, somewhere along the line, the the page and the the page and the knight got kind of pushed together into a jack. Um, so you've got one extra card per suit. <clears throat> now the actual suits themselves have, you know, pentacles, wands, swords, and cups have fairly deep significances they each have a elemental association so um typically how this is interpreted though there's been some variation over the history um is cups are associated with water uh wands are associated with fire swords are associated with air and pentacles are associated with earth um obviously though that elemental breakdown is is 
super old and predates the tarot and uh, predates most metaphysical concepts by quite a while. Um, but it definitely lives there in the cards and, and you'll see in like the Rider Waite Smith deck, there's often, you know, the illustrations often remind you of those associations. Um, but there's another kind of quaternary association um, with these with these symbols as well. And it lines up with, um, so Carl Jung had uh, a, a system basically where he said that um, the human mind kind of breaks down into four functions. Um, these functions were uh, thinking, so like the intellect, like rational problem-solving kind of thinking. There was uh, feelings or, uh, you know, which is like love, hate, anger, whatever, uh, emotions. And then there are into the intuitive process. So gut feelings, knowing something's right, knowing something's wrong. Uh, most creative acts come at least touch, at least rely in some way or are driven by intuition. And then there is the sensory. So that's, you know, seeing, hearing, uh, touching, smelling, tasting, um, but also that has to do with tangibility. That has to do with, you know, the fact that you've, you know, I've got a flat surface here that I can knock on and that sort of thing. Is there almost an angle of not just tangibility, but mm -hmm. a sort of, I guess I don't even know the word I want to use, but it feels to me like there's a emphasis on interactiveness yes. there, a sort yep. of, uh, experiential is not obviously even the right word because that plays more with intuition mm -hmm. but a, a sort of you have to do it to know it sort of knowledge or thinking yeah yeah I, it definitely uh, mechanical maybe even right is the word i want to use there that might yeah, be most I, appropriate yeah i think that's true and then i think i think in terms of tarot where you get this sort of sort of sensory mode is also things like uh like money things like education um, it could be something like um, what we call on the internet clout. Like those things <laughs> would all fall into would all fall into the into um, the pentacles. So the pentacles are all associated with those tangible, sensory, sort of real world things. Things that need to actually be generated. Yes, yes, and they're and it's also the earth sign. So it's kind of a way that you can think about it, right? It's it's okay. grounded on earth. Um, the, uh, the wands are typically associated with, uh, as I said, fire, but also with the intuitive process. Um, the swords are, um, air, but are also thinking, um, problem solving sort of the cognitive part and analytical part of the mind. Um, and the cups associated with water are associated with feeling and the, and the subconscious. So. You know, when you, let me just, I got a deck here. I'm just going to pull a card at random. Uh, of course, I pulled a major arcana card when I wanted to talk about a minor <laughs> arcana card. <laughs> so, okay. So um, I'm looking at this card that's the Five of Cups. And the Five of Cups is a very sort of depressed figure in a long black robe, clearly in like a state of grief, standing beside a flowing river. Um, and there are five cups on the ground at his, his feet. 
three of them have been tipped over. All of them are empty. Okay. So the knowing that it's, this is about emotions. You can tell just by looking at it, that this is some kind of card about grief or mourning, just because he's in all black, no other figure other than the death card is in all black in the, in the Rider Waite Smith deck. Um, But then you think about, okay, these cups, cups are supposed to symbolize emotion. In this case, three of the cups are knocked over. So there's something about um, a dissatisfaction with the emotional value that has been brought to you in life, right? All my cups are empty. Everything feels empty. Everything is gone. Everything is lost, right? That's, that's a, a, a 15 second reading of this card where we could go deeper, but um, just knowing that those cards are about emotion, we know that in terms of the human experience, we're going to load this reading of this specific card into that emotional quadrant. Now you've got the river, there's a river flowing by right there, which basically tells me like the sort of uh, self-development or spiritual healing uh, addendum to that reading is like, all he has to do is take one of those cups, go over to the river and fill it back up. That life right, has this it's right there, right, right? Right. It life has this never ending abundance of, of emotional, uh, power that you can draw from at all times. Right. So, and often the cards have that kind of like problem solution sort of baked into the image, right? It's all kind of integrated. So, so that's sort of, you know, now there are other layers of meaning you can start to add to these things. There are people who focus a lot on the the numerological aspect. Um, I don't lean too hard in that direction, though I do like it to some extent. I found that um, when I'm reading for other people in particular, that if I start getting into the numerology, it starts to feel like math class or something to people. <laughs> and right. So it's like, eh, whatever. So um, you need a certain audience for that kind of reading, I yeah, imagine. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I tend to lean a little bit away from that, but there are there are um there are numero- numerological associations with it. Um and you'll see that if you hold like the four of each suit next to each other, there you'll there is a sort of a commonality between them. Um like 10 is about completion of a process in some way. Um, mm-hmm. you know, two is about two is about uh, well, there's this concept of, you know, coming out of unity into the world. So now we're, now we're paired, we're, we're sort of paired and, and we tend to have a lot of binaries in life, right? Uh, you have two people come together in a marriage and you have a, a boss and a employee relationship, teacher, student relationship. We have, we, we, we really like that kind of bi- that complementary binary, it's, you know, it's a human, kind of a human universal. So, so there's definitely numerological stuff. There's color stuff as well um, that you can dive into on each of these cards, especially in the Rider Waite Smith. She would seem to be very cognizant of that as she was doing these illustrations. Um, but yeah, so that's, I feel like a, that's, now that's how I look at them in this, this union four quadrant mode for the minor arcana. Um, the, major arcana being this sort of spiritual journey from, from, you know, birth to, uh, something like enlightenment or as you, you would call it as individuation. Um, it's interesting that Carl Jung almost never talked about tarot, but I think his mode of thinking was probably the most 
uh, for me anyway, helped me to understand the tarot and what was going on almost more than anything that I yeah, read. And I'll say this, yeah. regardless of who I talk to about it yeah. or what context it comes up in, I hear no name associated with tarot <laughs> right. more than his, you right. know, not Levy. Not Crowley. It's always uh, Jung that people come back to. Yeah, and it's that's that's fascinating because, like I said, he said almost nothing about the tarot, Um, and it's all just it seems now. Now there are people like um, Robert Wang who who devised um, something called the Jungian tarot um, that's comparable to the Rider Waite Smith, but has some some um, some pretty noticeable differences. Um, Who's you know he wrote like four books on Jung and the tarot. And, um, he's, it's just him applying various union concepts to, to various aspects of the tarot. And I found that to be, uh, to be a huge help in, in trying to understand what the cards are doing and, and, and how to read them and how to use them effectively. So I suppose there's one more burning question sure. I have that I want to make sure we address before we, uh, come too far. Mm-hmm out of uh, time or start running long, not just for your time and what I'm imposing on you here with this interview, but also just for the audience listening. Right. Sure. So one thing I want to make sure we talk about is how to format a reading and whether that matters in your opinion, because I've known some people who insist that the cards and the reading must be patterned a certain way. Mm-hmm. And I've spoken to some people that are just, yeah, hey, just start flipping them off the top of the deck and reading the intent as it plays out. Yeah. So in your opinion, you yeah, know, does I, it matter? I think of, um, I think there's a couple of things that you can do that are effective. I think you can do whatever you want, but I think there's a couple of things that are to, a couple directions to take it that are going to make it as effective as possible. So one thing you can do, and this is maybe better for a person giving themselves a reading is, and I'll, I'll start simple and then go to complex. So the simplest thing a person could do if they were wanted to give themselves a reading and, and, and just maybe get a little bit of insight um, is just take the majors, the major arcana cards, you know, take a deck and, and pull all the majors out and shuffle them up and really just think about what's going on in your life as you shuffle them. Really think about, okay, what's good that's going on? What's bad that's going on? What do I want? What's going on that I don't want? Just kind of trying to position yourself in life and then draw one card. I found that at all times in my life, I can usually identify what major arcana card I'm living in at the moment. Um, and it's just helpful to, to have that and know what it is. It helps me to crystallize what's going on and, and know, okay, well, that's part of the process of being in the moon card or the, or the, um, the hierophant card or whatever. So that's one thing a person can do and just kind of meditate on, okay, what does that card mean? And how does that actually apply to my life? And does it apply to my life? And also thinking about whenever you're dealing with a major arcana card, it's significant what card comes before it and after it in the major arcana. So if you've got like, uh, if you pull uh, the hanged man, it's significant to know that the card justice typically comes before that and the card, the death card comes after it. So it can kind of help you to think about, well, how did you get into this situation and how did you get out of this situation? 
Um, so that's one thing you can do. One card reading, major arcana. Alejandro Yudorowski, oftentimes at like speaking events, he will just have people tell him a number between one and 22. And whatever number they tell him, he gives them a one card reading, right? Based on, based on which card of the major arcana that is. So that's a pretty neat trick. It is a pretty cool trick, right? Um, it doesn't work if the other person is also kind of a tarot nerd, but, um, <laughs> but, but it is kind of cool. So that's one thing you can do. The next thing you can do is you can do a three card reading with the whole deck. Um, and a three card reading, similarly, um, it's probably good in this case to focus what you're thinking on a little bit, maybe come up with a specific question um, that you are wrestling with. Take all of the cards, you're shuffling them as you think about this, you're shuffling them to the point, what I would tell people, what I tell people is the more you shuffle, the more you care. So just shuffle and shuffle and shuffle until you feel pretty confident that the order that the cards are in does not line up with the order before you were shuffling at all, right? You've completely randomized this yeah, thing. You want a nice, thorough, thick shuffle. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then draw three cards and you start with the middle card. The middle card represents present. That's what's going on right now. The second card you pull is the past card. You put that to the left. That is what has happened. And then the third card is the future card. Now, for me, I don't think that the cards predict the future in any kind of cartoonish way. Like, it's not like, okay, you drew the, um, you drew the, uh, lover's card and you're going to meet, uh, you're going to meet us, you know, your future spouse. To me, it doesn't work that way. To be clear, we'll loop ourselves back to the very beginning of our conversation here. Yeah. Mention the fact that, uh, this is a divinatory art. It's Mm -hmm. about intentionality. It's about pattern seeking. It's Mm -hmm. about synchronicity. Mm -hmm. These things are not dictating to you what's about to happen. They're pieces of paper that help you frame your analysis of events in your life. Right, right. And and so, yeah, no, and that's very, very well put. And so for me, if if somebody drew a lover's card in their future position, what that would suggest to me is, Whatever it is that you need to get out of to, to resolve the question that you asked in the beginning is what you should try to be doing in the future is lean into what that card is. Maybe lean into the sensuality of the relationship you already have with somebody. Or maybe you are, you know, single and, and don't want to be. So maybe you should be putting your energy into trying to find somebody to be your partner. Um, but it doesn't mean any of that's going to happen. It's sort of where you should be pointing yourself. To, to, to sort yourself through this problem. And similarly, the past card isn't so much a, well, you know, that's the, the psychic trick of, of like, I'm going to tell you something about you that you don't know. It's, um, this is the thing that had, this is something that was going on in the past that maybe brought you to this situation from a, from a kind of a psychological standpoint, a where's your head at kind of standpoint. Um, sometimes it also symbolizes something that you just need to let go of. Um, or it could symbolize something that you have um, sort of mastered or integrated or learned that you haven't realized you've learned yet. And it's time to realize that like, no, you've got that part sorted out. You don't need to freak out about that anymore. Um, and you can kind of move, you can kind of move on from that. So that's a good past, present, future 
um, card, I would strongly suggest you do the present card first and then past and future. Um, so that's pretty. That's a pretty straightforward one for people to do. Um, the big one that I typically would give somebody, and this is what I, I read for myself every few months, is a version of the Celtic cross. Um, and this and I'm is glad you brought this up because yeah. this is the one I almost name dropped. But okay, yeah, it's it's pretty much it's it's um this the Celtic cross was actually invented by Arthur E. Waite um, in his book, the uh, pictorial key to the tarot that he put together to be a companion to the Rider Waite Smith tarot deck. So the Celtic cross isn't something that goes back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It's, you know, a hundred and hundred, 120 years old as a, as a way of doing this. Um, it involves a lot more cards than three. I think it's uh, one, two, three, four, five. It's 10 cards, I believe can't yeah um so um and it's 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 really effective in my opinion it starts with again you 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 come up with a question um if when i'm giving a person a reading i tell them not to ask me the question or not tell me the question just think about it while they shuffle the cards so you're thinking about this question while you're shuffling the cards and it could be a lot of things it could be um you know how do i uh, why am I so, why am I so depressed? It could be, what should I do with my career? It could be, um, you know, what do I do about this relationship? Or it could be like, how do I get over this, th- this issue that I'm having? Right. It can be, a, it can be a broad range of different things. Um, and you lay the first card and the first card is the central card. It's the, it's the, 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 sort of narrative pin of this whole thing um it's your central issue from which all the other cards are going to kind of tie back to and then you take the second card and you lay that crosswise over top and that that second card is it's either what you need to be doing slash thinking to get over that to to resolve this issue it's what you're doing what you need to be doing or thinking um or sorry what you're doing or thinking that's kind of holding it back, that's preventing you from from moving on from this issue. It's 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 in a relationship with that first card that's either going to ha- either going to help you or is making it more difficult to to change the situation. Then you put a card underneath those, um, um, and that card is the underlying issue. That's sort of the um, it might be something you don't you you're not consciously aware of that's that's the subtext to this issue and then you put a card above all of these cards and that's a card that is something you are consciously aware of it could be a goal it could be a fear it could be something that's you know aspirational um, or it could be something that should be aspirational then you do a, a past and a present card on either side of the that central card much like the three card reading i, w- I was i was telling you about now what Waite said, what in Waite's original concept of the Celtic cross, you then had a staff of cards to the right. And these were all, I haven't used that system in so long, I forget their individually what they are. But they're questions like, they're, they answer supposedly questions like, um, who are you right now or something like that. I can't even remember what those are all supposed to be because it's been years since I've, I've used them. What I like to do is I like to just ask the querent to 
tell me one card in the spread that um, either didn't make sense to them or they want more explanation about or they want to talk about more. And so we'll sort of zoom in on that card. I'll pull it out and we'll do a little three card spread with just that card. So I'll add two more cards to it and we'll spend, you know, another bit of time talking about that card and and its association with these two cards that we've added to it. It's sort of like we've zoomed in and, and added detail. Um, it's like clicking the link. It's clicking the link on the Wikipedia article of your reading and seeing what right. else is going on there. Right. Yeah. So that's 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 the reading I most typically would do for you know a friend or somebody who asks me to do a reading for them. All right. Yeah. I think we've uh, kind of gone the gamut here. Okay, I cool. I think we've laid a really beautiful foundation Good for any listeners who might be interested in the topic. I've certainly learned a lot. Good. And uh, that was the primary exercise here. Excellent. Though, if you want to run me through your plugs again or talk a little bit about your book, I do still have a few minutes left. I don't know about you. Oh, yeah. But... I've, got some, I've got some time. I've always got some time to talk about... Uh... Uh, uh, my writing. So, um, yeah, please do. Yeah. So I've got a book that came out earlier this year. It's called house of sleep. Um, uh, I know we talked about tarot quite a bit and I was so happy to talk tarot, but, uh, writing a novel, writing novels is, is my primary passion. It's what I, you know, I spend every day doing basically. Um, and I have training in that house of sleep is a, I'm calling it literary sci-fi except, uh, PS Wi-Fi. Um, it's, it's about, um, uh, occultic enterprise, uh, in which, uh, the participants are able to remember their dreams as though they'd happened yesterday. Um, and the, the charismatic, um, possibly sinister man who, who leads this, who leads this cult, um, and, uh, the ways in which he's, he's taking, sort of taking advantage of, of the people who, who come to see him. Um, it's a little bit psychedelic, a little bit, uh, uh emotional, um, and I, I think it's pretty compelling. So check that out. I found it extremely compelling. You did. Oh, I'm so wanted. glad. No need to be humble here. <laughs> okay, I will great. do the, uh, hype man routine for you. I appreciate that. Uh, before we go any further, just please tell people where they can get it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's on Amazon house of sleep by Brad Kelly, but, uh, you can also check out my website, uh, Brad Kelly esque. So that's Brad, just like it sounds K E L L Y E S que.com so you can you can check out house of sleep there um it's the only thing i have that i charge any money for um but uh on my site you can also find short stories a number of short stories that have been published elsewhere um a uh the ongoing tarot series i've got I, I've, I've done a piece on i think 10 cards now i kind of started it earlier this year so i'm, I'm making progress but I'm, I'm putting a lot of time and effort into them so i'm not just tossing them off um they're they're they, they're hopefully come across as considerably thoughtful um and the other big thing i'm doing is um the art of darkness podcast with uh, my good friend and the great playwright kevin kautzman um, every episode we dive deep on the life and work of, um, of a writer that, that we love, at least one of us that loves them, if not both of us. Um, we've got episodes out so far on people like, uh, William S. Burroughs, um, Franz Kafka, 
we did an episode um, on Pamela Coleman Smith, actually, the illustrator behind the Rider Waite Smith deck. Um, let's see, Marlon Brando, uh, Tennessee Williams. Um, the last episode we had was William Faulkner. We're going to do one on Walt Disney soon. So we're cranking those out every couple of weeks and, and, and putting a lot of time and energy into those as well. So that's All Art right. of Darkness, uh, artofdarkpod.com. And follow us on Twitter. I'm on Twitter too. I'm pretty active on Twitter. Sure. So what's that at then? Oh, t- uh, Twitter is just my name, Brad Kelly, B-R-A-D-K-E-L-L-Y. I got in the game early. So I, uh, it's funny. Yeah. I, I, I got an account in like 2009 and never used it until like last year. So <laughs> I got lucky. I got to have like my name, which is a pretty ordinary name. I got to have, yeah. you know, without any any playing around so it's kind of cool all right well thank you so much for joining me thank you for making things as clear and easy to understand as you did you've been a real treat to talk to yeah this is great man i appreciate you having me on this yeah awesome all right well uh you have a nice evening listeners please apply this knowledge and uh yeah we'll see you around